This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Mizugai. We thank him and all our other patrons for their monthly support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Admirals, you're listening to episode 245 of Priority One Podcast, the premier Star Trek Online podcast, recorded live on Thursday, October 22nd, 2015, and available for download or streaming on Monday, October 26th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Kenna. I'm Mark. And in the recording studio is our audio engineer, Winters. Hi, everyone. Mark, what's coming up in this week's episode? This week, we're talking to Prior to One Science Advisor, Dr. Robert Hurt, about that rumoured Dyson Sphere orbiting a distant star. In Star Trek Online News, we're gearing up for Season 11 and looking forward to the new featured episode, plus a couple of extra goodies. And as always, before we wrap things up, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Speaking of hailing frequencies, it's great to receive all your messages, so chat with us during our live stream on Thursday nights at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash live, or answer our community questions. You can comment on our website, PriorityOnePodcast.com, join the discussion on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash Priority One, or follow us on Twitter at STO Priority One. Did you know that this podcast isn't all we've been up to? Be sure to keep your eye on PriorityOnePodcast.com for the latest in Trek-themed news and reviews and Star Trek online videos made specially by our team. Thanks again to all our Patreon supporters, old and new, that make this show possible from week to week. Because of your support, the servers stay on, the power keeps flowing and the team keeps producing. Help us improve the show by considering a financial contribution via our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash priority one. And now, let's check out those Dyson Sphere rumors with Dr. Robert Hart. Then let's check it out. If any of our listeners out there are space science enthusiasts, and I'm sure many of you are, You'll have barely been able to escape the news last week that scientists have discovered what could be evidence of an alien megastructure around a distant star, but that's not the whole story. If you remember way back to my very first episode here on Priority One, we talked about an initiative at Yale University called Planet Hunters, in which members of the public could sign up to help identify light patterns of distant stars that could be indicative of orbiting planets. One of the stars flagged as being of interest, the rather creatively named KIC 8462852, has turned out to be, well, baffling, and it's led a few people to the conclusion that the unusual light patterns coming from the star are not natural phenomena and could even be evidence of an extraterrestrial civilization. So joining us to discuss it today is Priority One Science Advisor, Visualization Specialist for NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, Dr. Robert Hurt. Welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be back. Okay, so what's your take on this story? Well, my take on this story is that this is an exceptionally interesting and exciting uh, astronomy story that isn't what you actually got to read in all of the dozens and dozens and dozens of articles that came out over the last week. 
Uh, it's in my role as poo-pooing all the cool, exciting stuff we want to be true uh, <laughs> in the astronomical news. Uh, I'm wanted to just talk a little bit about what was actually discovered, what's really interesting about this, before the media got caught in the frenzy of ETs and Dyson spheres and Dyson swarms and alien megastructures being some of the big things that get tossed around as the entire story here. The, uh, what's kind of cool about this, right, Kepler spent um, over four years staring at a field of stars, uh, uh, many thousands upon thousands of stars, to look for the faint little traces of planets moving in front of their stars, causing a slight dip in the amount of light, allowing us to basically indirectly detect planets. And you have to look at, at gazillions of these stars because the chances of being in exactly the right alignment is very, very slim. So you make up for the low probability by looking at a lot of systems. Now what's interesting, of course, is that you, you get these huge databases of, of data on the brightness of stars over time and you write software to help you comb through hundreds of thousands of stars to find the thing that you're looking for, which are these little faint, faint repeating signatures that, that hit at a regular interval. So what the software doesn't catch is really weird stuff that isn't the template of what you were looking for. And that's where citizen science comes in, the idea that uh, while the, the team doesn't have the time to really look and stare at every single light curve on this, if you throw it out to the community and you get hundreds and thousands of interested people all looking at different bits and pieces of the database, sometimes you can stumble on something really cool that you would not have noticed because it wasn't what you were looking for. And in uh, the case of this system, they found these incredibly bright dips in brightness, not, you know, again, Kepler typically was looking for fractions of a percent of a change in the brightness of the star. Here we're looking at changes on the order of like 25% dips in the overall brightness of the star and happening very irregularly over the course of the four-year period that the system was being studied. And after this really bizarre anomaly of, of a really huge dip was found, they went back into this database and they said, you know, are there other systems like this? And they, they found a few systems that had large dips, but those were all attributable to very normal things, like uh, binary star systems, where you have a brighter star and a fainter star. And when they pass in front of each other under a regular period, yeah, you can lose 20, 30% of the total light of the system, but on a regular repeating basis and on a very, very well understood pattern. This, as far as we know, is the only example of this kind of weird, irregular, bizarre drops in brightness over time. Now, What's uh, interesting is they, you know, they went off, they actually did a lot of their homework. They went and they observed the system very carefully. They used the Keck telescope and its adaptive optic system to get some of the sharpest possible images where they discovered it seems to be very, uh, the star which is a little bigger and brighter than our sun is next to uh, a smaller star, uh, uh, an M dwarf, that may or may not be part of a binary system, which is a clue. And uh, they went and they looked for infrared signatures to see if there might be traces of uh, dust in the system, which at the detection limits that they had data, they, they weren't able to find any. And it led them to basically go down the process of hypothesizing of what could cause this weird structure. And you know, after ruling out a few things that uh, uh, seemed very unlikely, you know, they had a few really interesting ideas, like there could have been some sort of, sort of cataclysmic collision between planets, like uh, maybe even of the same kind of order of event that formed the, uh, the Earth-Moon system when the early Earth was smashed into by an impactor and for a brief period picked up, you know, kicked out a lot of material, some of which coalesced back and formed the Moon. 
another uh, of course that requires that you were looking at exactly the right moment in the you know in the history of this once in a solar system event that you happen to catch it which you know is unlikely but not impossible uh, another uh, theory they have is there might be uh, due to this binary star you know just a, a swarm of comets kicked up and cascading into the system over this one particular interval in time and uh, the idea that again we may be picking up a kind of rare and unique event is is carried by the fact that you know like I say when you're looking at hundreds of thousand stars things that are rare become more likely because you're looking at enough stars that you can actually catch a rare event or two now that's all well and good but of course, people are also interested in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And another astronomer involved with the SETI project, you know, who's shown this data, thought, you know, this makes also potentially an interesting candidate to study just to see is there any hint of um, radio signatures coming from this world? Because if uh, if there were an advanced civilization that had reached a point that it had tremendous energy needs. There, uh, uh, you know, Freeman Dyson, a uh, physicist, proposed long ago that they might actually construct a, you know, arrays of solar collectors to try to uh, uh, basically gather a larger fraction of the energy output of the star, build these these mega structures around a star, it got to, to be known as a Dyson sphere. You know, we saw it kind of misinterpreted in Star Trek as a you know, completely thick solid shell of material that was built for living space, whereas an actual Dyson sphere or Dyson swarm is likely to be a, a much more diffuse cloud of independent structures that are there to gather energy, not to provide um, um, living area uh, to, to put on. And in astronomy, we call this kind of thing a sort of a, a, a low-risk, high uh, payback or high-yield uh, proposition. It's incredibly unlikely that it's an extraterrestrial civilization, but it's a really easy thing to follow up a few tracers, come up with a few ideas, and, and uh, then we can go off and do the observational homework and nail it. And it's all like fun and interesting. Of course, that's not how we saw it repeated in the media, because if you're like me, almost every article you saw was something like, astronomers think they found ancient civilization. Uh, my favorite actually was an art article. The title said, uh, "Astronomers uh, believe they've found signs of an alien civilization or a highly unlikely cloud of comets." And I loved that "highly unlikely" was attached to a cloud of comets rather than alien megastructures around a star. So, <laughs> um, so what we really have here is this kind of unique event. We've never seen anything quite like this before. And we have a lot of homework to do now to sort of figure out what this is. And there's a lot of follow-up observations we can do. And, you know, alien megastructure is, it's one of the hypotheses on the table. But it's, it's, uh, it's not going to be the most likely shot on something like this. And, you know, just off the top of my head, I can come up with half a dozen reasons why it's actually probably not an alien megastructure, just based on the timing and spacing and, and arguments you might make on uh, how you would build a structure to collect energy around a star. But the real lesson here is, you know, the, the exciting title isn't necessarily what people actually think is true or the most plausible uh, explanation. And whereas we've been misled a little bit to think that astronomers have already decided this is an alien civilization, the reality is we're just starting to formulate what would be the uh, consequences and, uh, uh, of, of an alien civilization? What would it look like? And what kind of observation can we do to um, you know, confirm or 
or uh, uh, counteract that hypothesis. But a Dyson sphere does make a great headline. It does make a great headline. <laughs> Though <laughs> Which technically is probably this wouldn't why it be has. a Dyson sphere. Because um, you know, a Dyson sphere would be, like we saw in Star Trek, a completely enclosing object that blocks the light of the star entirely. And in fact, the only way we would see a Dyson sphere is by the fact that uh, due to the laws of thermodynamics, even if you're utilizing you know, the starlight, there's still going to be waste heat that emanates out. So to an astronomer, a Dyson sphere would look like an infrared light signature that had no visible light counterpart to it. Whereas this is a series of uh, intermittent short period, but you know, uh, days upon days, you know, tens of days uh, length of period that the starlight was being eclipsed by thing, thing or things moving in front uh, and sp spaced out by a long period where it's not being obscured at all. So that's another term that's used a lot, Dyson Swarm, the idea of a swarm of independently orbiting uh, uh, solar collectors uh, you know, built into rings or, or separate orbits or devices, right? So that you're still not collecting all the light of the star, maybe just little bits and pieces of it. And then the idea here is that a whole cluster of them just happened to pass right in front of our view of the star at a period of time which, you know, unfortunately was right at that end of the uh, time period that Kepler was observing this field. It was right before it lost its gyroscope and actually had to stop this particular mode of observation. So. You know, effectively, you're looking at over four years of data, and all the interesting stuff happened in the last, like, uh, uh, 80 days or so that Kepler was doing that observation. And so we actually missed the opportunity, unfortunately, just due to timing, to see what continued to happen for the next 100 days after that. Did, uh, did the signature keep occurring? Did it decay? Uh, did it disappear entirely? You know. Yeah, but that's the next phase of this project, isn't it? To, to, to book time on a couple of other... Um telescopes to, to try and recreate that signal again. Exactly. And, uh, and it's going to be a harder thing to do because, you know, Kepler, one of the unique properties of Kepler was its ability to stare at one spot of the sky continuously and give us an unbroken time record of what's going on. Uh, you know, now you've actually got to, to continue that work, right? You've got to find another telescope that you can allocate enough time to, to come back and look at the star, you know, every day or every few days. Uh, it's going to be dependent on weather. Uh, but of course, and even based on what we saw from Kepler, you know, the system showed really no hint of this, uh, you know, 95, 97% of the time. So, you know, you may have to look for a lot longer before you see some recurrent event. But then you can, what you can actually start to look for is, you know, do you see things repeating, like you're getting the same signal again and again, spaced out over, you know, a decade or, or 20 years? Or did it look like a one-time occurrence? or something irregular that repeats but with no regular patterns. These are all kind of really valuable puzzle pieces to solve the mystery, but uh, you know, it, it's, it's like throwing a puzzle uh, on the table, right? And it's a 500 piece puzzle and you, you got like the first 30 puzzle pieces to work with. You're not quite ready to say what the picture is at that point. Exactly. So maybe we shouldn't be jumping to so many conclusions quite so quickly. Yeah. Maybe give it a little more time. I mean, it's important to know that, you know, the idea of a Dyson Swarm, it's, it's a valid hypothesis. It's actually an interesting one. But there's a big jump between the point at which you have an interesting hypothesis and you actually have enough data, enough implications of that hypothesis that you then go and you try to study in follow-up observations to then confirm or at least strengthen your argument.
So, and it's uh, it's part of the story that I think always gets lost in science and the media, uh, which is always a lot more interested in jumping on a sensational answer rather than talking about the process of how we learn. And I think we get a lot of confusion over the way science works when people only read headlines and they see a lot of sensational things that don't pan out and they sort of think, oh, well, scientists never know what's going on. Well, actually, see, scientists weren't actually saying that was the answer. They were saying this is a good question we have to study and the, the process is a lot slower. But the sort of the public-facing side of that process is only, you know, sensational answer, sensational answer, sensational answer, which systematically get overturned, which actually undermines confidence in scientists being able to actually come to the right answers. And so that's why I get a little curmudgeoning on these titles. It's like, yeah, I, I, want to, I would love to find that evidence of a Dyson swarm as, as much or more than the next person. But it's really important not to you know, jump the gun on a conclusion that you're not even close to ready to support yet. So what's the answer here? We need to go in and just read the papers, get the facts out, and then keep an eye on uh, the developments of what's going on. Yep. That's... Doesn't sound nearly as exciting as the headlines no. I read, but that's uh, <laughs> that's what the astronomers not a lot are of going to be doing now <laughs> to uh, yeah. give us a better idea of of what this thing is. And you know, and even if it isn't an alien civilization, and it's uh, honestly fairly uh, uh, unlikely scenario, that's the uh, to be the right answer. It's still really interesting, and uh, you know, if if it's just something as mundane as a comet swarm that is. Uh, kicked up by the passage of a nearby star, right? You know, we've never seen anything even vaguely like that in the entire history of our civilization. The idea that you would look up in the sky and see potentially hundreds or thousands of comets shooting through your solar system. That's actually pretty darn cool, too. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Hurt, for coming on in and talking to us about this. It's certainly a different perspective than we've been getting on, uh, on Facebook and other social media sites, I think. My pleasure. Well, great, and I hope we have you on again soon. I, uh, I'm sure I will be. Have a, have a great afternoon, everyone, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. All right, thanks again. So have you discovered something that you think the rest of our listeners would enjoy hearing about? A new advancement in science or tech that you'd like us to cover? Then send it over to us via incoming at priorityonepodcast.com. Now let's find out what happened this week in Star Trek Online. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. With the launch of season 11, inevitably comes the launch of a new featured episode, and this one will be called Sunrise. It's a fitting name following on from the darkness of midnight. Now, at the time of recording this podcast, details are still pretty sketchy, but we thought we'd share the episode's teaser from the Tribble server. The Iconian War is over, and the various galactic powers are turning their attention to expansion and exploration once more. Just on the edge of known space, a star has mysteriously started to go out. Visit this system and chart it, while trying to answer the question of what's happening to the star. This episode features the voice talent of Enterprise guest star Kipley Brown as a new character. The new episode will launch on Tuesday, October 27th. In preparation for the launch of the Admiralty system, the team at Cryptic seem to be offering a hand to us players who long ago dismissed some of the ships which are now once again useful. With the launch of Season 11, all the Lithium ships are receiving a permanent reduction in their cost. Lieutenant ships, normally 8,000, are being reduced to 5. Lieutenant Commander, 15 down to 10,000 Lithium. 
Commander, 40,000 down to 20,000 Dilithium. Captain, 80 down to 40,000. And Rear Admiral from 120,000 down to 80,000. Now, added to this, a special event will be running from October 27th till the conclusion of maintenance on November 3rd by reducing ships by a further 50%, meaning that Lieutenant will be 2,500, Lieutenant Commander 5,000, Commander 10,000, Captain 20,000, and Rear Admiral 40,000. I know I, for one, will be using what the lithium I have to claim some of the ships I had in the past, and who knows, might even tempt me to try them out all over again. Tier 1 ship ISA, anyone? I would have to go tier one ships cannon builds. Ooh. Ooh, interesting. Not that I have any tier one ships or have anything to outfit them that are cannon builds, but it'd be a fun challenge. Yeah, it would. I've seen people try it in shuttles. Shuttles. Yeah, shuttles. Shuttles. Okay, that's a concept. <laughs> it's a feature. Yeah. We got a double hit of new things to help us with the Admiralty system, the introduction of a dry dock feature. This allows us to store our ships for the long term with a few clicks in order to open up some ship slots again. We won't be able to switch to that ship easily though while it's in dry dock. Each ship you do this with though gets set back to the basic template and it's all equipment placed in your inventory. So re-equipping and re-customising will be required when bringing it out again. Let's be honest though, who doesn't love a bit of space barbie in this game, be it character or ship? Access to this will be through visiting any ship selector. All players will have access to a handful of dry docking ship slots upon the future's release, and gold subscribers will automatically be granted access to many more. All players will also have the option to purchase additional dry dock slots as needed. I'm a little disappointed in this. Yeah? Really? Well, my first reaction was, hey, that's amazing. And my second reaction was, it's disappointing. And I'll explain why. Please so, do. Yeah. Okay. Popcorn moment. With the introduction of the Admiralty system, where we've got these ship cards and they you can retain the ship card even after you've dismissed a ship. Here we thought that it was going to be this great thing. Great, we have a way now to keep track of all the ships that we've dismissed, even if we, you know, even if they're gone, which is great. Something that we haven't had really in the past, unless it was a sea store ship that you bought. But this kind of is a letdown because. Where I was personally thinking, great, we've got a record of all of the ships we've ever kept. That's not going to be quite the case. If you want to keep a ship, you've got to put it in dry dock. And dry dock is finite. It's not infinite. You can't buy 200 different ships and keep them all in dry dock. Well, you can if you pay for it. So I think it's a little bit of a letdown. Again, we haven't seen this, so it might turn out to be different than I'm thinking it will be. But from the initial description that we've had... I think it's a bit of a letdown. Well, isn't it really kind of just expanding upon your ship slots, except, you know, the ships will not have any gear on them. That's the only difference, but it's adding extra ship slots for you. It's expanding upon that. Is that not a good thing? And then that way, the ships we get with Dilithium, we can put them in there, and then if we ever want them again, we don't need to rebuy them with Dilithium. I kind of saw it from that aspect, but... It's like you said, I kind of need to have a bit more information and see it before I want to make any sort of final judgments. Yeah, I just, I would still like to be able to have some mechanic that says anything that I've ever dismissed, I'll be able to get back. And it doesn't look like this is the solution. It's a feature. It's a feature. Last week saw the release of the patch notes before tomorrow's biggie, the release of season 11. And brace yourselves. As normal. We have two main points and two known issues. The general... Hooked up the calendar icons for the Galactic Restoration event, and the Dilithium Weekend event has been moved from the 29th of October to the 5th of November. 
The known issues remain as the R&D daily mission for cannons incorrectly rewards Argonite gas. Some players are not able to reclaim the Breen, Shell Grey and the Dyson Science Destroyer. Again this week, in an effort to bring you some of the news and comments from PWE and Cryptic that aren't officially announced in the blogs, here are the latest comments pulled from the Twitterverse. At Salami Inferno tweeted, super excited for it tomorrow. Be looking forward to it for 25 years. Hashtag back to the future day. Hashtag when this baby hits 88 miles per hour. Thomas Moroni at Cryptic TTC. Now that doesn't make any sense because I'm not going to read the whole underscore and all that nonsense. Thomas Moroni tweeted, where we're going, we don't need roads. Happy back to the future day. Alvera at Captain Gecko tweeted, playtesting our anniversary episode and our 11.5 episode today. The fun never ends. We haven't even launched season 11 yet. Yeah. Jeez. Wow. At Trek Online Games tweeted, Happy birthday, Christopher Lloyd. Your famous work such as Commander Krug in The Search for Spock is an inspiration. <laughs> I kind of feel like he's leaving out some like really big roles that Christopher Lloyd has done, though. But how many can you fit in 140 characters? No, but there's one, I can't remember what it is, but there's one like really iconic role that he did that like... Who killed Roger, or who framed Roger Rabbit? That's what you're thinking. Uh, yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. It's who framed Roger Rabbit, yeah. Yep, see, I knew it. And finally, if you get the chance to check out the latest Star Trek magazine, keep an eye out for an original piece of Star Trek online fiction by Cryptic's own Kate Bankson, entitled Hope Remains. And lastly, before we wrap up Star Trek Online news, here are some upcoming events to look forward to. In addition to the big one, the launch of Season 11 on Tuesday, October 27th, look out for the featured episode Hearts and Minds over Halloween weekend. There's also a Dilithium weekend starting the 5th of November, which should be easy for our UK players to remember, remember. As always, these events are subject to change without notice, and be sure to keep an eye on the in-game calendar or keep tuning in to Priority One Podcast for the latest updates. That wraps up Star Trek Online news for this week. Now let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. Well, Admirals, we're at that part of the show where we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Last week's community question was, what will you be doing to prepare for the launch of Season 11? This week, we're doing something a little different, along with the great feedback you all have sent in. Mark Winters and I are also going to be sharing our launch traditions. Decker73 commented via PriorityOnePodcast.com, When I first learned of the Admiralty system when it was announced at STLV and how our commissioned ships would determine the ships we had available to play, I naturally commissioned sea store ships on all my characters to fill all of their ship slots so I'd be ready the day it went live. When it hit Tribble and I learned more about how the system would work, I went back and dismissed many of those ships so I'd have free ship slots to do the claim and dismiss on launch day. The night before Season 11 goes live, I'll probably move all my Federation characters to Deep Space K7 in the room with the bank, ship requisition, and ship selector. Small Yoda posted on PriorityOnePodcast.com To prepare for the Season 11 launch and the incoming Mirror Universe forces, I'll be donning my Terran Empire uniform and dusting off my Zephyrin Cochrane shotgun. The Terrans may have the technology to defend against energy weapons, but are they prepared to defend against the power of good old-fashioned projectiles? One of the best ways to defeat an enemy is to use their own weapons against them, and an over 300-year-old shotgun is so unexpected that it just might work. Sean Newboy also dropped us a note. Oh my gosh, Kermit and P1, pigs in space! Wonderful show, everyone. I can't wait to start the Admiralty system. And finally, Jack Morenzo shared with us via PriorityOnePodcast.com, 
I have a feeling that I'm going to be sick on the 27th and my two days off work on the 28th and 29th. Great work as always. P.S. Captain Kermit of the USS Piggy will be the name of my new Fed alt. Engage! Flails arms! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> oh, dearie me. I hope his employers are not listening. Yeah. So, what about you guys? What are you guys going to be doing for the launch? Pre-patch, walk away and try it two days later. Oh, downer. <laughs> no, because I never, I never get in. I never get in and launch day. So I tend to let things settle, let people's characters come. Because you know when they load, they need, all characters need update. But I'll probably park my character somewhere way away, where hardly anyone is, so I can log in without any server disconnects and sit with a bottle of vodka. Yeah. Do you know, I, I never do that parking your alts thing. I don't do anything different. I always forget. So it's like, you know, real life gets in the way and everything. And then on the day of launch, I go, oh, yeah, it's launching. <laughs> uh, and then I'm always stuck. I'm usually, you know, in Soul System or right outside of Space Dock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> usually takes me a couple of tries to get in. But you, you doing anything special, like, you know, clearing your schedule? Thankfully, I have a half day at work the next day, so... That's Ooh. going to come in really handy. Not that I picked it or anything. It just so happened that's when it fell. Honestly, <laughs> it was very. It was very nice of them to 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 arrange accommodate. Have a, have yes, to, exactly. What about you, Winters? Any launch day routines that you follow? Oh, I'll probably do the same as Decker seventy three. I'll probably go to Deep Space K seven. I'll have all my tunes on the Fed side parked up there, and uh, I'll get the ships sorted out in all my tunes and start them off on the Admiralty system, and then I'll get stuck into featured episode. Yeah, see, I'm not going to do that first. I'm going to, well, once I get in, because it usually takes a little while, doesn't it? I'm going straight for the featured episode. Mm. It's all about the immersion. <laughs> no, I'll I'll start off with the Admiralty system first and get that working, because, you know, like you have to wait. And hopefully then by the time I've done all that, and after I play the featured episode, I'll have completed some missions and I can set up another first batch again. Oh, no, that's a good idea. I, I plan to go in straight into the featured episode, straight to the Badlands, and then, if I'm still awake, <laughs> then go into uh, Admiralty system. But it'll be pretty late by the time I kind of get around to it. Of course, we have a podcast to do. We do have a podcast to do, and I have work the next day, so it's a little tricky, but um, it'll work out. So in about a month's time, I'll be all caught up. <laughs> it'll be great. Each week, our social media channels are busy with your thoughts, opinions, and suggestions for the show. Please keep them coming. Reach out to us on facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast. Follow us on Twitter at STO Priority One or shoot an email to incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Well, that wraps up episode 245 of Priority One Podcast. Before we go, here's a reminder of this week's community question. Will you be taking advantage of the dilithium ship price reductions? And what ship are you most looking forward to picking up? Admirals, you know we love hearing from you. Let us know what you think of the show and submit your responses for our community question in the comment section on our website, on our Facebook page, or with a Twitter reply. Be sure to catch our episodes every Monday morning by pointing your podcast catchers to feeds.priority1podcast.com and stay in touch with us throughout the week by following our social media websites. Head over to facebook.com forward slash priority1podcast and give us a like. Or check us out on Twitter via at STO Priority One. You can even join the Priority One podcast 
podcast chat in game. Just type forward slash channel underscore join space priority one. Admirals, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of Priority One Podcast. Thanks to our patrons, we've already hit our monthly running costs, and with additional contributions, we can continue to grow the network and bring you more of the content you love. Please consider a financial contribution via our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash priority one. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, sharing this podcast with your friends is a great way to support the show. And don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions Guard Frequency Podcast at guardfrequency.com, covering the ongoing development of Chris Roberts' upcoming space sim, Star Citizen. If you like this show, then listening to Guard Frequency is the logical choice. The Priority One fleet is recruiting and there's never been a better time to join. If you're interested, just shoot us an email with your at handle and we'll be sure to send you an invite. The email is incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. And now you can become part of our Klingon fleet division, Warriors of Priority One. Today is a good day to join. And if you'd like to see more from our fleet, be sure to tune into the fleet live stream at 8pm Eastern every Saturday night at twitch.tv forward slash Priority One. Thanks to the entire team behind Priority One Podcast for their ongoing, dedicated and consistent contributions over the years, including our executive producers, Elliot and Elijah, our audio engineer, Michael McDonald, with audio assistance from Brandon Parker, Jake Morgan, Asmaria DePost and James Calvin. Thanks to our graphic artists, Romulan Ale and Jason Smith. And if you enjoy our comics, the creator of our comic series, Jonathan Towery, can be commissioned at Towery Designs. That's T-O-W-R-Y designs.deviantart.com. Thanks to all our bloggers and their managers editor L, to our Foundry reviewer Jake Morgan, to our video editor Jerry Tillman, and to consultant Midnight Shadow 7 of Hollow Sweet Media for supporting the show. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Most importantly, a big thanks to you, the STO community, and our listeners, because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Red alert! Ready weapons! Engage! Kenna, trek it out, sync two. Uh, one. <laughs> sync one. One. She stole my number. It's because I was thinking so hard, too. Trek it out, too. <sighs> Shall I do that again? This Let's is Kenna, sync no. out, trek it out, crap. Sync it out. And we start so well. <laughs> First line, bloopers. <laughs> okay, this is Kenna, trek it out, sync one. This is Mark. Check it out. Sync two. Oh. Okay. Right. Phil. Phil. Okay. If we hear any screams or sounds like something's on fire, we might have to suspend the live stream for a few minutes (laughs) for technical difficulties. Mm -hmm.
<laughs> it's not rocket right, so, science. Oh, oh, oh God! <laughs> yeah. Access to this will be through this. I can't even read what I want. Freaking wrote. Wrote it yourself. I know. Thomas Maroney tweeted. Oh, that's not even mine. I know you. Winters. Thief. <laughs> what? I didn't even. Oh. Uh, so anyway. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not even reading that. What the heck? <laughs> Oh, going off script. He's going off script. He's going off script. <laughs> Panic, man, the life folks. We are. Nobody yeah. told me about this. Yeah. <laughs> are we doing that? Yeah, are we are. doing that first or are we doing that last? <laughs> no, we're doing it last okay. at the end.